Hi, this is Dr. Pierre Min from the Université de Montréal. My areas of specialty are medical anthropology, the anthropology of humanitarianism, global health, and the anthropology of reproduction. Just so the audience can get a sense of the size and scope of the medical aid interventions in Haiti, how many registered versus unregistered NGOs in Haiti? Also, give us a sense of the ecosystem. I know the numbers, the numbers change over time, so you can pick a particular period as a snapshot. The number of NGOs in Haiti, it comes up a lot as an issue, especially when talking about the inefficiency of aid or the fact that aid groups are corrupt because there's a very high number. And we've heard this expression, the Republic of NGOs. At the time when I was doing my work, there were about 3,000 registered organizations in the country, many of whom focused on healthcare, but different estimates. Um, and it's hard to know how these came up, how people came up with these. People would talk about 10,000 organizations. And it's tricky to know what really is an NGO? Is it five people who have gotten together to form an organization? Is it something huge like World Vision or Save the Children that operates on a national scale? And another tricky part about thinking about NGOs is that actually a lot of foreign aid in Haiti is not non-governmental. It's governmental. And so international aid agencies of different governments, whether it's USAID or um, Global Affairs Canada, which used to be um, CEDA, the Canadian, Canadian International Development Agency, are responsible for funding and then in the cases of some, some governments actually putting into practice and implementing those organizations. It's clear that there is a large number of them and that they vary enormously. Small groups, large groups, groups from the Haitian diaspora, secular groups, religious organizations, groups from Asia, groups from Latin America, from other Latin American countries, a lot of groups from the United States and Canada. Let's talk about your field work in OCAP. Talk about that experience in terms of how you were received by the local population. Also, why did you decide to focus on secular groups? By the time I had started working in OCAP, I had worked in a few different communities in northern Haiti, uh, including the village of Oboy, a small town of about uh, 2,000 people. I'd also worked on the Haitian-Dominican border, going back and forth between Wenamit and Dahabon. And um, I decided to do uh, my doctoral fieldwork in Haiti, in northern Haiti, but in the city of Capaïtien. And um, I had found it difficult to work uh in more rural areas, for example, in Oboy, as soon as I set foot in the street, people wanted to know where I was going, what I was doing. Everybody knew where I was. Um, and I grew up in a rural area in the U.S. And um, I, I had a hard time with that visibility and um, the, the feeling of sometimes being observed and watched and the impossibility of just being anonymous and walking down the street and not um, having everybody know that I was out or where I was going or what I was doing. So um, I, I decided that I wanted to do fieldwork in a city. And um, I decided not to do it in Port-au-Prince, where most urban ethnographies have taken place in Haiti. I found that in previous studies, people had either worked in small towns or 
rural areas or uh, in Port-au-Prince. Uh, and yet uh, these secondary cities, whether it's Ocap or Ocaille, um, Gonaïve, Jérémy, Saint-Marc, um, these are becoming important. I mean, they have long been um, important urban areas, but Today, there's a lot of dynamics uh, around urbanization that are affecting these cities and that have not been studied. So one of the questions that I was interested in was, how were these aid groups working outside of the capital uh, where there was a density of aid groups uh, at the hospital where I was? There were there were several of them. There were actually a few dozen um, that you wouldn't have found necessarily all in the same rural village. But being far from the capital, being far from Port-au-Prince made it so um, they didn't have access always to the centralized authority of the Ministry of Health or the resources of the bigger NGOs that were based in Port-au-Prince that people are familiar with from um, the vehicles that they drive or the neighborhoods that their employees live in. Uh, I decided to focus on secular groups as well because a lot of these um, uh, organizations that uh, would define themselves as secular, they were relatively recent. We know that there has been a long tradition of religious aid organizations in Haiti, whether they be Catholic missionaries or different Protestant aid groups, and some of those have been studied already. Um, Tara Heffron did a study of parish twinning Catholic parish twinning. And I had a sense of what people might say about those projects and those programs, the values um, of Christian charity, uh, different teachings in the gospel or in the Bible around uh, aid and healing. But I was curious about secular groups um, and those who expressly, some of them expressed discomfort with religious models of healing. Um, I was interested in seeing that as an emerging phenomenon, and not just in Haiti, but around the world. So we see organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières, Partners in Health, a lot of aid organizations that are popular in progressive circles, and that will embody progressive values around social justice. I was interested in seeing what that would look like on the ground. And it became fascinating because many of the recipients or the partners of aid in Haiti were themselves religious. And so they would interpret the aid in religious terms saying, well, God sent you or you're doing Jesus's work. And that made a lot of the foreign aid workers very uncomfortable because that's not at all how they conceived of their projects. So my fieldwork in OCAP lasted about um, a year and a half, and uh, from 2007 to 2009. Um, and then I would also go to different rural sites in the area, go back to the clinic in Oboy that I had connected with on my first trips to Haiti. Also some work at L'Hôpital Sacré-Cœur in Milo, uh, which is a private hospital uh, through Catholic aid organizations to get a sense of how things were different at L'Hôpital Justinien. Um, and some comparative perspectives for my primary field site. Can you tell us about Dr. Celestin? Uh, what did he represent to you, and uh, how is what he said connected to the title of your book? Dr. Celestin was one of about 55 medical residents at the Hôpital Universitaire Justinien, where I did most of the research for my book. And I spent a lot of time with medical residents because they 
were at the hospital pretty much all the time. Many of them lived at the hospital, and they were forbidden from having a private practice outside of the hospital during their training, which could last three or four years. So we were about the same age, late 20s, early 30s. We were in training. I was in graduate school. They were doing their residencies. Um, and I saw them a lot. And I felt uh, a lot of uh, shared experiences with them in terms of professional uncertainties and um, being uh, being uh, in the role of a, a student or a trainee and wanting independence um, to do more um, advanced forms of either medical practice or, in my case, research. And I remember he said to me once he was describing the conditions that he was working in and the lack of infrastructure in the hospital and the delays in being paid. And he said, I'll go somewhere where they need me. Um, and Haiti is so often described as a place of need, um, as a place where people need more resources, more health services. So how is it that this brilliant young doctor was considering migration abroad as going to a place where he was needed. And of course, what he meant was a place where his skills could be put to use and a place where he felt appreciated by the organizations or governments responsible for providing health services in the country. So he was very aware of the local needs of the patients around him. He just felt frustrated by the inability of the health system in Haiti to make use of his skills, to provide him meaningful work, um, and to make him feel like he was making a contribution for the health of his fellow citizens. You said that you wanted to take a different approach to medical aid in Haiti, you wanted to avoid the familiar binary categories of success versus failure. Here's what you wrote. Rather than ask if medical aid in Haiti is working, I have chosen to examine the workings of aid. Yes, it's, it's very easy to find texts or written descriptions that will say and the descriptions of waste and graft and inefficiencies that are often described by journalists. And these exposés are extremely important uh, as critiques of international development, of capitalism, of very common humanitarian practices. So these failures have been documented, and particularly in the case of Haiti and in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. I think it, it's assumed that aid in Haiti is not working, or that much of it is not working, is uh, inefficient. And then, on the other hand, you have organizations and governments providing reports showing results and things that did work and successes and justifying further investment or further aid. And I think many of those evaluations that are trying to show success, many of them are honest, and they're not necessarily making things up, and they are showing uh, legitimate uh, successes, but that the bigger picture is such that conditions for most people in Haiti are not improving and aid is not changing the conditions that they are living in in a substantial way. That being said, small changes can be important. So what I was interested in was what gets left out of both of these accounts, uh, these successes and these failures, 
And how can we think about aid differently in terms of what does it mean to people every day? What does it mean for a Haitian professional to work for a foreign agency? How do um, groups of aid workers debate amongst themselves what's the best course of action to take or how they should develop funders priorities but in a way that are that in ways that are still respectful to people on the ground so as part of my selection of groups to study i looked for groups that i thought were appreciated by their haitian partners and who were doing serious work who were not wasting money or um, engaging in terrible behaviors or you know kind of being reprehensible as they went about their aid work i think it's important to tell stories about those groups but since i wanted to follow groups long term i knew that it would have to be with organizations that would let me have access to their activities that would uh, welcome critique. And I found groups that were already self-critical and that were already asking themselves hard questions about what they were doing and had they made the right decisions. So that's what I think of as the workings of aid is really the everyday experiences, the small debates, the ambivalences, the nuances that don't make it into either stories of success. In the uh, acknowledgement, you you asked a uh, Rosemary Casanol Chirici, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, how to make a difference in Haiti. What did she tell you? Rosemary Chirici was an extraordinary woman. She was a professor of anthropology at SUNY Geneseo in upstate New York. She left Haiti when she was 18 in the late 1950s and then returned to Haiti to conduct research and began a small organization called Hope Haiti Outreach Projet Espoir on the north coast of Haiti in a small town called Oboy. She invited me to Haiti in 1997. I remember a conversation with her uh, when we were talking about what I would do there. A lot of college students, my ideas about what a U.S. or Canadian student does in a place like Haiti a lot of times focuses on intervention, contributing uh, some kind of infrastructure or structure to the area. Rosemary kindly pointed out that I didn't have any of the skills to do that, and I didn't have any of the knowledge of the community, so it wouldn't make sense for me to come in with an intervention, given this lack of experience and knowledge. So she said to me for that first summer, we'll go spend time with people there, learn as much as you can of the language, spend time with farmers and market women and fishermen and learn about life in rural Haiti. And eventually, uh, if you want to do something, uh, you'll have a sense of what's going on there as opposed to coming in with uh, solutions from the outside. And to this day, I'm grateful for that introduction to Haiti, which is one that I think a lot of young people don't have. And I think a lot of times we need to consider places like Haiti as a place where we can do study abroad. In the countries that college students leave the U.S. or Canada to go study abroad, England, France, Italy, etc., there's a respect for the language and the history and the complexity of societies there that I think oftentimes is absent when people go to places like Haiti or Nicaragua or Honduras or many African countries. There are a lot 
of different definitions of global health that are circulating. I'm always interested in historical perspectives, and there has been a lot of work looking at the precedence of contemporary global health in international health, in public health, before that in uh, tropical medicine, and different forms of health systems during colonial regimes. And so I think looking at those continuities through time, one sees different tendencies that have uh, shifted and, and changed somewhat, but also go back uh, to longer legacies of how health can be managed in and across borders, across continents, inequalities, etc. I find the work of uh, Andrew Lakoff on this very interesting. He describes two regimes of global health, one that is global health security. So all of the infrastructure that was developed around emerging infectious diseases and threats to health that could cross and around protecting powerful populations from sicknesses that developed in more marginalized or impoverished parts of the world. And then he also describes what he calls humanitarian biomedicine. And that's the face of global health that oftentimes appears more in, in public as the idea of making biomedical technologies accessible to impoverished and marginalized groups. And that can be diagnostic technologies. It can be uh, therapeutic technologies, such as pharmaceutical products or surgical interventions. Um, it can be medical education, can take different forms. So I think for a lot of anthropologists, global health is not about developing a uh, single definition, but more looking at how the term is mobilized. A colleague at uh, Reed College in Oregon, uh, Betsy Breda found that when people talked about global health in different university-based training programs, it had to do with any health services that were not here, she calls it, or not in uh, the United States. It had to be in another country. You see a lot of programs will, where they will make the argument, well, global health is at home too, but no one has to say, you know, global health is also in Africa. So there are certain sites around the world, notably Africa and Haiti, that are uh, central to the how global health is imagined uh, by North Americans. For other folks in public health, they'll say, well, what folks are doing and calling global health, uh, they've re branded public health, essentially. And we've been talking about these themes and tendencies for a long time, whether it be inequalities, access to resources, also some debates around that and whether schools of public health uh, should rename themselves to be schools of global health because it will attract more students, or should they stay true to kind of public health ideals that have existed for over a century. Um, other folks in global health will say, no, there's a difference. And uh, global health places a greater emphasis on health as a human right um, and health uh, equity than public health has in the past. And that's what might distinguish it from earlier forms of public health, whether it's international public health or um, domestic If you thought I was done digging deeper into the definition of the word global health, au contraire, mon frère et sœur. What did you mean by this? Haiti is both marginal 
and central to global health. U.S. medical students come to think of global health as not here, but elsewhere. Certain parts of the world are uh, conceptualized as spaces where global health happens. So the African continent, for example, has a long history as a site of colonial intervention, as a site of extractive capitalism, uh, but also as a place that is considered to be in need of interventions around health, whether it be around emerging infectious diseases, around nutrition, um, around uh, violence. Uh, Africa has a place, especially in the North American imagination, as a site where uh, one can intervene and one should intervene to help people there who might be sick or suffering. Um, and Johanna Crane's book, Scrambling for Africa, describes the rise in partnerships between U.S. universities and different clinical sites in Africa. Um, and HIV AIDS epidemic became a focus point for this. Uh, global health, uh, oftentimes, if it's in Africa, it's thought of as something that is far away, that has to be traveled to, that is remote, distant, difficult to access. And Haiti then occupies a, a kind of a different space. Given its proximity to the U.S., uh, it's not that far. And it's close. It's in the Americas. Um, and oftentimes Haiti might be portrayed as a place that is distant and remote. But we know that Haiti is really at the center of the Americas and is central to the history of colonization, um, of the slave trade and of political movements connected to the Haitian Revolution um, and other decolonial movements. So Haiti has kind of an interesting space as not being on the African continent, but a lot of times associated with Africa because of the ancestry of its population. Um, it's a place where uh, Paul Farmer and uh, he has a, a an important place in our book uh, because he intervened there and because he was considered such a central figure um, in global health and still is, despite uh, the fact that he has passed away. In, in some ways, Haiti's condition makes it the perfect place for global health, but its proximity makes it not quite far enough to be considered uh, global. Let's uh, switch now to something you call the anthropology of humanitarianism. You said humanitarianism, humanitarianism emerged from several intellectual traditions and that, uh, quote, growing number of anthropologists began turning their attention to humanitarianism as an object of study, unquote. What's going on there? When I started studying anthropology in the mid-90s, um, there were few people who were studying humanitarianism as an anthropological subject. And it emerged very quickly, actually, in the early 2000s, a number of different intellectual traditions. There had been some studies on migration and refugees um, that were interested in uh, some questions that would be central to humanitarian activities. Uh, the anthropology of development was important as well. But I think one of the big um, shifts happened when actually earlier it became less possible politically and intellectually 
to uh, study many of the classic populations in anthropology who are framed as primitive others or savages. And there was a move um, that occurred, especially in medical anthropology, to study the suffering stranger. And this is a term that's been used both by Leslie Butt and Joel Robbins. And the suffering stranger came to occupy subject of the anthropologist's study or the population that would receive uh, or that would be analyzed and the idea is the anthropologist would position themselves in solidarity with these suffering stranger or these suffering others. So there was an otherness that fit with anthropological traditions of studying difference and doing comparative studies. Uh, and there were also moral claims being made by medical anthropologists that um, they had a duty to um, speak up for those who are not heard in the public sphere or official discourses, that they had to express solidarity with people who were victims of injustice. So the anthropology of humanitarianism, I think, is at the confluence of these different uh, traditions and continues today a field that is both in medical anthropology, political anthropology, anthropology of migration, um, and to a certain extent, anthropology of uh, experience or uh, interests uh, in narratives of populations who have faced different forms of suffering injustice. How do you define coordination? It's a pretty loaded term. Yes, it's a very loaded term. And I found that there are actually very good reasons that aid groups don't coordinate or aren't coordinated. So there's different ways of looking at it. Part of it is who defines priorities, who chooses what kind of aid can come into the country. There's also the possibility of refusing aid or saying, no, you can't do this intervention or saying you should work here instead of there, or you should carry out these activities instead of those. So it's also an issue around authority. There were all kinds of factors. There were pragmatic factors that impeded coordination. So a lot of the aid organizations do fly in, fly out work where they come in for short periods of time, they intervene and they leave. And coordination takes time. It's easier now with internet technologies, but even with those technologies to uh, facilitate communication, a lot of the groups were too busy with their interventions to coordinate with anybody else. If uh, they were just coming down for a week or two weeks, uh, they didn't have time to coordinate with other actors, whether they be local actors or international actors. There was also the issue of leadership. A lot of the small aid organizations organizations, and some of the larger ones too, had individual charismatic leaders. Uh, so figures like Paul Farmer or figures like uh, my professor, Rosemary Kirichi, who was um, the director of a small aid organization in Oboy and um, who was really the pillar of that organization. Who Folks identified the organization with her and she, she really uh, kind of embodied uh, the group's activities and was so invested in it with her time and her energy. But it meant that she was not able to coordinate with all of the people just because she didn't have the availability and the time and the energy to do so. So centralized leadership can make it uh, complicated. There was the, also the issue that a lot of the recipients of aid did not want 
the donors to find out about each other. So for example, I saw cases where the director of a hospital or of a clinic would be receiving aid from one group. And then a week later, another group would come by and offer maybe a different form of aid, but the hospital director would never put those groups in touch. We'd keep them separate. He would not mention that he had a visit from another group the week prior. And this wasn't about corruption or this wasn't about uh, trying to uh, do something immoral. He knew that if the second group found out about the first, there was less likelihood that they would continue their intervention or contribute because they would say, oh, you already have people helping you. We want to go towards um, a community that has no aid whatsoever. And these fears were very well founded. I remember at the Justinier, there was a wing um, that was visibly receiving outside aid. So it was a part of the hospital that had been renovated, where they had more infrastructure, they had a generator, it had been painted recently. And donors would walk through the hospital and they would stop there and say, you don't need us. You already have uh, your support and you're doing great. We want to go towards something that um, a service or a wing of the hospital that is that is in really bad shape. But the problem was, of course, that service that seemed to be doing well, eventually they would run out of gas for their generator or they had more and more people coming to them because they had a good reputation and they couldn't scale up to meet the growing need. So there was this constant tension between being able to perform competence and say, I can manage resources. And at the same time to show that there was desperate need. And that also involved a lot of times people on the receiving end of global health interventions do not have. I saw a lot of folks in Haiti say yes to resources or visitors or volunteers or trainings that they weren't particularly interested in. But they said yes, because sometimes they were optimistic um, that even a broken down ambulance, you could use the tires, you could use the motor, even if you weren't able to provide an ambulance service, you never know, you could maybe do something with the ambulance uh, that had been donated. And also, they knew that if they said no to a resource, the donors would find another recipient. And the next time there was another resource available. So, for example, you don't want the ambulance, but you want the x-ray machine. If you say no to the ambulance and the donors donate the ambulance to the hospital in Lambe instead of in Ocap, well, when the x-ray machine becomes available as a donation, you're going to go with the group that said yes the first time because you already have their contacts, because you've already worked through the logistics of customs with them, because you've received pictures of people with the ambulance saying, yes, it made it, thank you. And so people would say yes pretty much to anything. And that uh, led to dumping, for example, uh, broken down equipment, old clothes, expired pharmaceuticals. And again, I don't blame people for always saying yes. I think they're trying to manage their resources the best that they can. But that ended up creating all kinds of problems around coordination. Can you tell us about the role of the Haitian Creole and global health in Haiti and also uh, language barriers? Can you talk about that as well? Yes, Haitian Creole specifically, I think, has been subject to so much prejudice, so much marginalization. And uh, it's a language that's quite, there are not that many resources for learning it outside of the country. 
uh, in the way that, for example, people who are intervening in, in uh, Spanish-speaking Latin America can have easy access to uh, Spanish courses before they go to Nicaragua or Honduras or between trips. They can uh, improve their language skills. Um, there are more resources, resources online now and then, of course, in communities where there's a larger Haitian population. So Miami, New York, Boston, Montreal, there are some courses available. But I've taught some Creole courses and I found it quite a challenge to get a diversity of pedagogical materials. Also, again, you have to overcome, like you said, these prejudice, whether uh, Creole is a real language or if it's broken French. And what is the value of learning this language that is not considered a universal language and that is not considered a language that will be really useful outside of Haiti, as opposed to, let's say, Americans who will learn French and associate that not only with the prestige of French, but also with the capacity of being in different Francophone sites around the world, whether it's West Africa, whether it's Francophone Caribbean, French-speaking parts of Canada, etc. With Haitian Creole, despite the fact that there are Creole speakers in a lot of different countries and areas, it's considered a language that is not useful uh, outside of the Haitian context. And given that in a lot of global health groups, this mobility of going to different sites, spending a year in Haiti and then a year in Uganda and a year in India, etc., is valued for people who are looking for prestige or a, a diversity of experiences in global health uh, interventions. The time and energy uh, invested in learning local languages oftentimes will be seen as an impediment to the kind of mobility that they strive for. So yes, these are definitely their real world uh, consequences in not being able to understand patients and not being able to um, understand their needs. I remember being told by an American doctor um, saying that there was no way of saying to save it. There was no way of expressing the concept of saving money in Haitian Creole because people in Haiti were so concerned with the short term that there was no word for save um, in terms of saving or putting away resources. And I looked at him and I said, I can think of five ways to say this, five different expressions right off the bat that, that does not at all correspond uh, with the reality that I have seen in talking to people where the idea of fait économie, c'est etc. It's extremely important as something that people strive to do and they're constantly planning for short-term, medium-term, and long-term. So this ignorance that he had about the language um, also translated into a kind of scorn or disdain or a minimization of Haitians' capacities to plan. There's also the language barrier, and especially in health and medicine, people tend to minimize this, saying, um, oh, well, we speak the same language. I remember a doctor saying, we speak medicine, we can understand each other, even if I don't speak French and this person doesn't speak English. I saw time and time again where people misread each other's intentions, that frustrations would develop, um, and it was very hard in meetings, uh, especially with a lot of actors involved. And I saw this, especially after the earthquake, you would have these meetings, dozens of participants from different countries, and they were conducted in English. So right away, it would exclude a lot of folks in Haiti who don't speak English or whose English skills are limited and not able to participate in conversations. And then very few people who intervene in Haiti take the time or the energy 
to learn Haitian Creole. So for Francophones, they cannot understand uh, Creole and they could not communicate with a lot of the people that their interventions were being targeted to. So I think we need to keep in mind those pragmatic considerations, even with all the technologies that make communication easier, time, leadership, and language still remain barriers. Those interminable meetings. Can you talk to us about the role of meetings? Yeah, who doesn't like a long, drawn-out meeting? Um, I remember one time I was working on the board of another organization in Haiti and I suggested, because the meetings were so long, I suggested standing meetings sometimes. I know some organizations are doing that to speed them up. And I just got a lot of dirty looks. People are like, no, 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 we're not going to stand during this meeting. We're going to sit and we're going to talk things out. Meetings, yes, could be very lengthy. And again, there were logistical considerations. People uh, a lot of times had difficulty getting to the meeting sites. And uh, there's a lot of humor around uh, being late in Haiti and time. And uh, I think a lot of that is actually around infrastructure. It's about the unpredictability of different forms of transportation. And before the arrival of cell phones, it was about access to standardized timepieces, which now has increased greatly uh, with cell phones. And people are able to text or call to say that they'll be late to a meeting. So I have seen big shifts around that since the arrival of cell phones in the early 2000s. Meetings did two things. Sometimes you could coordinate during meetings. And I found it interesting to be in meetings sometimes where people from different groups were represented uh, sometimes uh, hospital staff would meet uh, and they would meet with cleaning staff, with nurses, with doctors, with administrative positions. It didn't happen often, but people who were kind of mixed in terms of the hospital's hierarchy or at different places in the hospital hierarchy would come together for meetings. Uh, and I often saw in those spaces, if that person was at the meeting, if they had a seat at the table, they were listened to. Um, and sometimes they could be interrupted or belittled, but sometimes they also had the opportunity to speak up. A lot of times what ended up happen happening is people farther down the hierarchy just never got invited to the meeting in the first place. So they were they didn't have access from the get-go. There, there are always going to be hierarchies uh, in different meeting spaces, who sets the agenda, who speaks, and then uh, in transnational uh, meetings where there's folks from different groups and different nationalities, translation was also something that would lengthen meetings a lot. And I saw all different kinds of translations. Sometimes they were excellent. Uh, sometimes it was quite poor quality with a lot of the meanings being distorted or um, abbreviated, a lot of nuances being left out. So again, in the context of meetings, especially with diverse groups, can both help coordination or hinder coordination in that uh, people would be in the same room, but not really understanding what the other was saying. So Cuban medical brigades have been present in Haiti since 1998, when Hurricane George created a lot of damage and destruction in Haiti, the Cuban government sent medical doctors and also nurses and different ancillary medical staff. And that was the start of a program uh, that had been ongoing. By the time of the earthquake in 2010, I remember hearing that there had been over 6,000 
Cuban medical professionals who had gone to Haiti. And generally, they would go for two-year shifts. And they were paid at the time about 300 US dollars and served generally in public clinics, dispensaries, and hospitals throughout Haiti. And you could find Cuban medical workers in very rural areas where Haitian clinicians um, were few and far between. And I met a real diversity of people. I met folks who were really interested in international solidarity and cooperation. Um, I met other people who seemed pretty indifferent <laughs> in terms of the work that they were doing uh, and was told also that at the time they would be earning 27 U.S. dollars in Cuba. So that $300 U.S. in Haiti was actually a, a significant improvement in their income. They could also make purchases while they were in Haiti, whether be electronics, uh, microwaves, computers, and bring those back to Cuba when they returned after their mission. So again, I saw uh, different folks, different motivation. I saw Cuban doctors who would get woken up in the middle of the night by people who had had different accident, accidents, uh, women who were giving birth, and who would say to me, oh, they're the only people that we can go to at night, um, and they, they answer. Um, they will treat us uh, if we have emergencies, even if it's at 2 o'clock in the morning. So um, in many communities, they were very appreciated. There were also some situations of mits mismatched. For example, I saw laboratory technicians sometimes working in clinics where there were no labs, so essentially they were there for two years not doing very much. But I think in great part, they were appreciated for the contributions that they made in Haiti. And one of the things I remember hearing from Haitian clinicians was that the Cubans were used to working in scarcity. And if the power went out, they could keep working. If they didn't have the medication or the exact surgical instrument that they would have liked, they were unfazed and they kept going. And that was different from American or Canadian counterparts. Um, who were used to working with very specific conditions and with specific medical resources. So um, they were appreciated uh, for that. Um, but then there were also complaints that the Cubans sort of arrived empty-handed, that they didn't come with a lot of the equipment and materials that are needed for biomedical practice. It, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon, and not just in Haiti, uh, Cuban medical brigades are active in many countries around the world, and they are also involved in the training of Haitian doctors. So they will grant a number of scholarships for uh, students to study in either Santiago or Havana to study medicine uh, with the agreement that they will return to their communities of origin in Haiti after their training in Cuba. And there have been uh, hundreds of Haitian medical students who have been trained uh, in this way. What was behind the residents going on strike? During my research, the residents went on strike in great part because they had not been paid for many months and their revenue was already small to begin with. And the fact that they weren't paid uh, for months on end while they were supporting their parents and sometimes children led to a lot of frustration. They felt that they would be paid eventually, and that was something that surprised me, even if uh, they criticized the Haitian government or l'État uh, for all sorts of things, they were confident that eventually they would get paid. But uh, when it took too long, and also because of working conditions in the hospital, lack of electricity, lack of running water, um, doctors were 
showing pictures uh, to media before the strike, of doing operations or procedures by the light of their cell phones, of doctors having to go and get water from the well, which they considered to be humiliating, not having access to running water or decent working and living conditions, they went on strike. And it was very interesting because they had to, at one level, get the empathy of the population because folks were angry that the hospital virtually shut down because of the strike. And they had to make a case that just because they were doctors didn't mean that they uh, had a lot of resources and that their strike was warranted and legitimate. And there were different messages on their placard saying, even if you see me with my white coat and my stethoscope, I can still be hungry. Or um, Clorox, the, um, the sensation of burning in the, in the stomach and the digestive tract because one is so hungry. That was an expression that came out during my field work. They talked about Clorox being for everybody and being hard for everybody. So that was a way that despite the fact that they have a professional status in Haiti, they were trying to make an appeal to say that their economic conditions were pressing as well. Your book points to a, a fascinating the stay, the length of stay of, of, of volunteers in Haiti uh, has an impact uh, on, on the country overall. How does time impact, you know, things like, like meetings and coordination between uh, aid entities? In all of the diversity of the organizations that I studied, um, it became apparent that a lot of groups were sending down volunteers or U.S. or Canada-based staff short-term. And there could be regular trips. People could come down four, five, six times in a year to visit projects in Haiti, to have meetings, to um, bring down volunteers, etc. But um, there weren't that many organizations where people from the outside came to Haiti to live and establish their families. And that model was um, mostly associated with Catholic missionaries, so nuns, priests, and brothers, many of them actually from Montreal or Quebec, uh, where I live now, who would spend 15, 20, sometimes 30 years in Haiti, uh, living really as, as um, full-time residents uh, in the country um, and doing different things around healthcare, around education, sometimes agriculture, uh, trips that would be one week a year or two weeks a year, sometimes around spring break or sometimes during their summer vacation. And again, the fact that they were not there full time meant that they had less contact with the local population, with um, local government authorities and with other actors who might be coming from the outside that they didn't have a chance to meet because they weren't there at the same time. I wanted to talk about the leadership and group structures of some of these organizations operating in Haiti. What's the significance of these terms you heard from, from mid-level staffs in Haiti? One of them is Equipe Docteur Willy. Dr. Wheeler's uh, team or group Natalie, Natalie's group. You write that this kind of reductive framing causes problems in areas such as coordination, which you spoke about earlier. You also said focusing on, on concentrated uh, charismatic leaders in these organizations is, is a double-edged sword. Uh, how so? Yeah, a lot of these organizations 
were built out of one person's passion, initiative, and resources to intervene in Haiti. Varied a lot. A lot of times, medical groups were spearheaded by a single physician who, in biomedical hierarchies, will sort of be at the top um, of the pecking order in medicine. But sometimes it could also be nurses or other health professionals. Um, and these were folks sometimes who had had histories of um, growing up in Haiti if they were part of the Haitian diaspora. Others had been traveling there for many years. And others were just good at mobilizing resources, and they were good at garnering support in their home communities. I saw these groups especially come from the U.S. and Canada. They were good at giving media interviews. They were good at convincing people that intervening in Haiti was worthwhile. And those groups became known as like Dr. Wheeler's group or Natalie's group, you said. And on some level, that facilitated coordination uh, and action because you just had to deal with one person and one person could make a very centralized decision. Okay, this year we're going to go into that community or we're going to build our clinic here or I met this Haitian dentist who says that he needs us to come down and work with him, so we're going to do that. But being focused on charismatic leaders, again, isn't always a good thing. In that if that person had conflicts, well, the conflicts would touch the entire group or organization. Or if that person retired or passed away or lost interest, it could, met the, it could put the whole group and their, its activities at risk. So as much as a lot of these groups talked about the driving force behind their organization and the commitment and the passion of, of charismatic individuals, that that would fuel the intervention over the long term, I think it can become problematic. You said internationals often made jokes or comments about Haitian tardiness. You say that sometimes is uh, sometimes are couched as as jokes. However, you also point out some underlying structural and material constraints at play as well. Yes, I mean I think that there are differences in how time is perceived and how the importance of coordinating activities along a, a specific standardized time. I think that varies in different parts of the world. I think it varies among populations, among generations. There are all kind of different issues that are at stake. But one of the things that struck me was that a lot of foreigners that I saw intervening in Ocaf would stay in hotels downtown. They could walk to the hospital, which is really centrally located in the city. Sometimes they would have private vehicles and chauffeurs. And so it was easy for them to manage their time. Also, when they were in Haiti, a lot of times when foreigners were in Haiti, they were not with their families. They were eating at restaurants. They were not involved in a lot of the logistics that their Haitian counterparts were involved in, either childcare, dropping their kids off at school, managing the house, etc. And so I think there was also a lot of inequalities that made it that some people were on time and others were not. I think we know the state of a lot of roads uh, in Haiti has deteriorated or that there are different constructions going on. Uh, OCAP is pretty notorious for its lack of of infrastructure in terms of roads where uh, there's a lot of traffic jams and there's a lot of uh, time that is spent to go short distances. So I think this is a, a challenge that's faced in a lot of urban areas in Haiti. And then in more rural areas, you know, people are 
using motorcycles, are walking, are using donkeys and, and horses at times to get from one place to another. And there's all sorts of unpredictable events or road conditions that can lead to tardiness. Can you unpack this quote for me from the awesome Elizabeth McAllister? Here's uh, what she said about how aid in Haiti often operates, end quote, the unseen world of hidden, covert, and sometimes illegal political and economic deals between both Haitians and Americans and others that have been instrumental in shaping the overlapping crises that Haitians confront. So unpack, unpack that, that world uh, for us, uh, that dance between the donor class versus uh, the recipient. Uh, what are you and McAllister getting at here? Yeah, I think one of the things that McAllister is pointing out is that a lot of times there's a tendency to think of aid or humanitarian activity as being in a separate category as being removed from politics and economics, or that should be, when in fact, it's about people and resources moving. And it's about efforts to address inequalities. And that is always going to be political and economic. And we know that in Haiti, business transactions, political maneuvering, whether it be around elections and leadership, whether it be around uh, trafficking of drugs and arms, etc., are happening in covert spaces and elite spaces. I think they're happening more and more online and less in person. But I think there's a history of uh, elite spaces in Haiti, whether they be luxury hotels or private homes, etc., where um, a lot of decisions are made that will have an impact on the population. And the population is not privy to. They do not know what's going on. Um, they do not have access to the decision-making process and the priorities are often set without their contribution. And we see this in healthcare. Another colleague, Catherine Maternowska, described how family planning programs were designed in Haiti by people, whether they were foreign or Haitian, who had never set foot in the homes of the women for whom the plant family planning methods and strategies were being decided. They had no idea what uh, their conjugal and romantic and sexual lives were like. They had no idea what their daily economies were like. They had no idea what barriers they faced in accessing care or what hopes they had for their kids. They just made a lot of blanket decisions about their health service. Can you tell us about donor flag planning, which you write are sometimes done for legit reasons. What if the Haitian government had the opportunity to put its brand on all those projects? Would that be the start of some kind of trust building opportunities from, from, from Haitian citizens? Rather than the donors taking all the credit? Yes, there was the issue around who got credit for an intervention. And in many cases, the donors, it wasn't clear exactly who was responsible because it could be a government that funded the program that went through a private organization or a company with different individuals also contributing, some of them anonymously. So it wasn't always clear uh, who would get public recognition or credit for having uh, carried out an intervention or built a building or sponsored a training. 
There was also the issue of some foreign organizations who didn't necessarily want their name to be on an intervention because they didn't want to be too visible or get a lot of further requests or they wanted to act more to empower uh, local interventions and not make it seem like foreigners were the ones responsible for changes in the hospital. But they were told by their Haitian partners, you have to put your name on it because otherwise the Haitian government will take credit for it. Or because it's a pop public hospital, the population might assume that this new building or this new electrical system came from the government. And we don't want them to get credit if they didn't actually do the intervention. So uh, that could become controversial at times. Oh, my God. 